listening to the Construction Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here's your host, Tip Top Tim Fitch. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Tip Top Tim Fitch, and welcome to the latest episode of the Construction Big Breakfast. Today we're going to be diving some really interesting topics, a bit different for us. We're going to hear all about what a parliamentary agent does and uh, with special reference to a number of very big projects I'm sure everyone's familiar with, including Crossrail, High Speed 2 and uh, the up-and-coming A66. Joining me today for our, this particular podcast is our very special guest, Robbie Owen. Morning. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Robbie. Can you give the listeners a little introduction to yourself? Yes, well, um, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Robbie Owen. I'm a planning partner at Pinson Masons, the international law firm, and I head up our uh, UK uh, infrastructure planning and government affairs business. Robbie, it's great to have you on today. The first question before we get into the topics, and I'm sure you've prepared well for this, is what did you have for breakfast today? Well, I had a couple of cups of tea as, as per, and then um, I had a slice of toast with Marmite and some sliced fresh tomatoes. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all. It was fine for Monday. Yeah, very yeah. well. Yeah. When I got up, pumped iron, and when I got home, I had a muffin, toasted muffin, and two fried eggs. Very good. And some coffee. Yeah. So I'm afraid I didn't have time for eggs this morning. It's a bit of a quick one. Yeah, well, I, well yeah, it's digressing a little bit. Frying eggs is really quick, and it doesn't add very much fat. A lot of people say, oh, it must be terrible for you, but all the fat comes off if you cook them properly. But you know what, though? If you fry eggs without fat, which you, you can do with a, with a, if you've got the right saucepan, they still taste completely different to poached eggs. Why is that? Anyway. Don't know. We'll have to get someone <laughs> from the uh, food tech business, yeah, industry to explain that. Yeah. Anyway, Robbie, great to have you on. Can you, you mentioned in the intro that you're a parliamentary agent. Now, I think I know what that is, but I reckon most of our listeners won't. So can you just give us a, just tell us what a parliamentary agent does? It's it's quite a hard thing to, to, to summarise or, or to talk about succinctly, but essentially you are the agent and we're all, we're all lawyers. There are um, 15 or so of us working as parliamentary agents in the UK. We're all lawyers and you are acting as the agent for someone that needs um, representation in Parliament, by which I mean the Westminster Parliament nowadays, obviously there's other parliaments as well in the UK, but um, so you are you are instructed by an outside person, so it could be a local authority, it could be a major landowner, um, to uh, advise them and represent them in relation to parliamentary proceedings. Now, what sort of parliamentary proceedings? When in the 1840s and 50s there were loads of railway bills going through Parliament and bills for canals before then, um, Parliament agents would act for the promoters of those measures, so people like Isambard Kingdom Brunel, Great Western Railway Company, and also they would be instructed by um, landowners and those affected by the schemes. So you were the agent for you know, the, the promoter of the bill uh, or um, people that didn't want it uh, either at all or through their, their land holding. Um, and all these, all, all of our major railways, ports, canals, they were all authorised individually by Acts of Parliament. So the parliamentary agent would act for 
those people I've described in relation to the bill which became an act um, in due course. So, and, and we still have that today because our largest infrastructure projects still proceed by way of bills um, considered in Parliament. Um, so since I've been practicing for the last 35 years, we've had um, bills for uh, the Channel Tunnel, the Channel Tunnel Rail Link, which is now HS1. Um, uh, we have had um, two hybrid bills so far, they're called hybrid bills, uh, for uh, HS2 Phase 1 and Phase 2A. Uh, we had a hybrid bill for Crossrail, uh, Crossrail, uh, Crossrail 1 as it was called when Crossrail 2 was being contemplated. Crossrail 1 of course due to open tomorrow. Yeah, we're filming on the 23rd. Yeah, 24th of May tomorrow. Uh, we had hybrid bills for Cardiff Bay Barrage, uh, Second Seven Crossing, Dartford Thurrock Crossing, Queen Elizabeth Bridge. So uh, all those all those bills involve parliamentary agents acting for the promoters, so in those cases the government, and acting for local authorities, landowners, communities affected by them. And, um, and we're about to restart that with HS2 Phase 2B, which is the bill for taking HS2 from Crewe to Manchester. So that's the next. Um, that's, that's the next, next one on the block. Yeah. Let's just, by way of reference to Crossrail, which obviously is super, super topical. Obviously, you've had a lot of involvement in it. I had some uh, years ago. What does the parliamentary agent's role look like on a massive mega project like that when you're trying to get something through the parliament? So, if you are the agent for the government, so in most cases, the Secretary of State for Transport, you know, his department, her department appoints an agent. You are working alongside the government lawyers um, uh, in relation to those provisions of the bill, which becomes an act, that affect private interests, so compulsory purchase, highways, watercourses, etc. So, you work with the government to put the whole package together, which takes two, three years before the bill even appears. So the HS2 Phase 2B bill that was published um, um, a couple of months ago now, they would have been working on that for three or four years. It's a big thing to get a bill ready for Parliament. All the plans, all the environmental assessment needs to be done, uh, all the consultation and, and stakeholder engagement. So that's your role. And when the bill reaches Parliament, when it's published, as it was HS2 Phase 2B um, a couple of months ago, you're then um, representing the government in arguing why the bill should be passed. There will be amendments to the bill that have to be dealt with, um, and you'll be doing that arguing mainly in committee proceedings, where um, uh, those who don't want the bill to be passed in that in that form turn up with the likes of myself, um, and we. So, so if you're the parliamentary agent for uh, an objector, we, they're called petitioners, so they still use the sort of Victorian language. So if you're the parliamentary agent for the petitioner, you turn up and, and, and argue why uh, the project shouldn't be permitted in precisely that phase, you, in, in, that, in that form. You can't, for, 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 a, for a government measure like HS2, phase 2B, you can't turn up and actually object to it in principle because by the time it gets to the committee stage, it would have had a second reading uh, by the House of Commons, and that signifies that Parliament approves the principle of the measure. So your scope is limited to arguing about detail, but very important detail. So uh, with HS2 Phase 1, and I remember going back to 2005 to 2008 with Crossrail, uh, there were many, many days' worth of committee proceedings in both houses of Parliament, so the Commons and the Lords, where uh, 
uh, yeah, the government was arguing why certain concerns from petitioners were, were misfounded, and the petitioners were arguing, no, they weren't. So we were involved. Uh, the, the big win that we had with Crossrail um, back in 2005-06 was uh, we were representing a large landowner who was arguing that the Liverpool Street station for Crossrail should have um, a second exit near Liverpool Street station. This was heavily resisted by the government uh, at the time and through their agents uh, in committee and the committee found for the petitioners so they required the government to go away and amend the bill to provide for there to be a second um, uh, entrance and exit for the Liverpool Street station in the heart of the city um, and the government yielded to that, brought forward amendments and the bill was then changed. So. Uh, occasionally you have big victories like that, more often you have much smaller but important um, victories for landowners and local authorities that make changes to the bill that give assurances and undertakings about how the project will be built, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I know in the case of Crossrail, that, didn't that result in an enormous number of obligations? Yes. Construction phase. And the same, the same for HS2 phase 1 and 2A. Um, government um, have a register of undertakings and assurances that uh, applies to that, 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 that applied to the construction of HS 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 one indeed HS two phase uh, one and phase two A and Crossrail. So all of those big projects, the government have adopted the same sort of template of having this register of undertakings and assurances, which which are given during the parliamentary passage. And they then get logged in this register to make sure that they are then delivered and, and it's largely down to the contractors because most of these commitments the government give sort of bite on the construction phase, it's down to the contractors to make sure they are then delivered, which is obviously a complex process to make sure they're all tracked and, and secured. So um, you're talking about many thousands. I've got this number in my head because I was involved in this very peripherally. I thought there was tens of thousands. It, 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 could, it could well be. I've got um, 40,000 I mean, in my mind, whether I've misremembered yeah. that. I mean, you can imagine, well, with Crossrail, there were no one really objected to uh, the principle of Crossrail. I mean, even if they wished to, as I said earlier, you can't really. But whereas obviously with HS2, it's a rather different matter. There are people who still fundamentally um, don't agree with the concept of HS2. But with Crossrail, it was universally. Um, uh, accepted, but still there were several thousands, maybe more, as you say, Tim. I can't remember. I'm afraid um, commitments given by government during the passage of the bill, which then had to be delivered. Um, and some, and some of those will affect um, operation operations as well. Therefore, they will have a continuing obligation to deliver. But um, it, it's important also to remember that these these bills authorizing these mega projects. Um, still only really authorise the concept and, and, and the principle. There's loads of detail that then has to be developed once the bills enact and receive further approvals um, from mainly local authorities. Um, so it's quite important for um, contractors to understand that sort of downstream consenting process because it's, it's obviously important and you can't put the spade in the ground very often until you've got those further more detailed Consents. So, what would that extra, sort of the next phase of the consenting process that look like on crossroads? So obviously, that runs through many local authorities, doesn't it? Yeah, it's things like agree, a, a, a agreement on detailed design, agreement on, on landscaping, agreement on lorry routes, all these sort of things. Um, there's a 
there's a uh, there's a schedule in the HS sorry in the Crossrail Act, and there equally is in the HS2 Phase One Act that sets out what are these detailed approvals that are still required. It's a bit they're a bit like planning conditions, really. So you know, with a typical planning permission for uh, any form of development, you get given permission subject to conditions. Well, again. Uh, the HS2 and Crossrail Acts were passed by Parliament subject to conditions um, and particularly requiring these further approvals from local authorities on, on points of detail. Um, they, they are quite constrained in terms of the extent to which they can sort of um, approve those further details with further conditions or the extent to which they can reject them. So, so the, the, yeah, the Act sets up, the, the Act sort of gives them their parameters, a bit of a straitjacket if you like. Um, and that has actually given rise to some litigation, particularly, not surprisingly, on HS2. I think with Crossrail, it was all pretty um, pretty trouble-free in terms of contention and, and litigation, whereas certainly not the case with HS2. It's still fairly early days with HS2, of course, in terms of construction. Well, let's just pass on to High Speed 2, because um, I live not on the route, but a mile or two to one side of it, and my parents live on the other side of it, um, closer. And there is a, and this is in... Um, Buckinghamshire, is it? No, I'm, I'm southwest Hertfordshire, yeah. and my parents are in the Lundborough of Hillingdon. But the, the route goes very close to where they live in. Both there and where we live in, Rickford, there's still quite a lot of agitation trying to stop it when the tunnels have started. There's huge yeah. earthworks going on. You know, still got big billboards up saying stop high speed too and things like that. But just because Crossrail is so much less contentious, compare and contrast a bit with high speed too in terms of the Parliamentary Act went through and then with lots of obviously lots of debate on both sides. But it, it was backed, if I remember correctly, by all the major parties. But what's happened since the bill was passed with the ongoing litigation of the outside of that process? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the differences stem from the fact that, uh, you know, Crossrail was, was universally accepted as being a good thing. This was, of course, quite some time before all, all of the levelling up debate and the calls for greater investment in the north of England and the Midlands. I mean, um, I wonder if Crossrail was being proposed now, what reception it would get. But so this was, um, let's not forget that Crossrail had, had its origins in a 1970s study. Um, it was brought forward originally as a private bill in Parliament by London Underground and what was then British Rail. That was re rejected by a committee of the House of Commons in 1994, from memory, I think it was, or uh, uh, yes, 1994, 1995, I think. Um, government then took it on themselves as a government measure. They got it back into Parliament uh, in 2005, and it got through in 2008. So the Crossrail Act of 2008, um, which was still a long time ago. Um, and there was no trouble I can recall then in terms of getting possession of land. There might have been the odd one, but nothing that hit the headlines. Whereas with HS2 Phase 1 at Euston, 
you, you know the story, and I think there was something published last week. Was it saying two hundred million pounds are going to be spending on taking possession of sites and then securing them? Um, why is it different? I think just because it's a. I mean, in terms of length, of course, um, I haven't got precise stats in my head, but HS1, of course, must be 70, 80 miles from the coast to St yes. Pancras. That was built uh, with very little protest and general acceptance. I mean, the, I, I remember when the, what was then the Channel Tunnel Rolling Bill was going through Parliament between 94 and 1996. Yeah, there were big debates about you know, impact on the countryside, whether there should be longer tunnels here and there, and, and, and that debate was had, and I think resolved to most people's satisfaction. It's a good question, what is different then with HS2, um, particularly phase one? Um, uh, is it just because the project is so contentious that even once the parliamentary stage is finished, it doesn't die down, or actually it's getting, it seems to me to, be, to have got worse since uh, the parliamentary stage finished, not got better, or is it because society is slightly changing and we no, no longer accept to the same extent we used to judgments of parliament and our institutions? Um, I, I think it's a very good question. I'm afraid I don't have the answer, um, but I, I do think sort of civil mistrust in officialdom, if I can call it that, has increased, which is worrying because um, you know we obviously have the rule of law in this country and most of us believe in it. Um, and once everyone's had their ability to have a say, and of course the, 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 you know, the, the thing with the parliamentary process I was talking about earlier is if you are especially directly affected by a proposal, if you're a landowner or a local authority, you can directly intervene in Parliament and, and have your say. Um, that rule doesn't extend to people who aren't especially indirectly affected, so they're obviously continuing their protests now. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, in the last few days who's working with the landowners to get their compensation. Yeah. So there's all sorts of cut and shuffles, they've lost a bit of a field there, and all sorts of provisions that having to be made, so there's going to be work for years and years and years. Yes, I mean, there, there isn't, and I don't think, it doesn't appear to me, and I haven't got a direct interest in any compensation cases now, um, some colleagues of mine have, but it doesn't appear to me that HS2 Limited um, in particular have covered themselves in glory in terms of how they've dealt with the compensation process because you know, when the bill goes through Parliament, discussions then can't generally focus on compensation. There are a few cases where you can argue if there are special circumstances that the the compensation code, which is the term given to the collection of laws that govern what compensation you get for compulsory purchase, um, you can argue in some cases that won't be fair when it's applied, and therefore the bill should have a particular additional provision written into it. But generally speaking, when the bill's in Parliament, you can't talk about compensation. It's the same for other procedures that don't involve Parliament for infrastructure schemes. Um, so. Compensation is left for when it comes to implementation. And um, uh, it, it's a hugely complex area of law. It's grown up over many, many years. Some of it dates from Victorian times. I was interested to see the government is now looking at reviewing this. Of course, it's, it's a massive task, not necessarily seen as a vote winner, which is why it keeps on being delayed. 
Uh, I mean, I was involved in a campaign in the mid-1990s, actually, it was called the Crossrail Compensation Campaign, to try and, off the back of Crossrail, um, get the laws of compensation for compulsory purchase reviewed, but it went to the Law Commission, they produced a report, government then sort of sidelined it, thinking, well, you know, we haven't got time for it now. Um, so, yes, I mean, it'll produce work for years and years and years um, until, I would say, for five years after the last phase of HS2 opens. So the last phase, if, if they end up building the eastern leg of yeah. phase 2B, um, when will that be finished? Heaven knows. Add another five years and there will still be work for um, advisors, including lawyers, uh, surveyors, valuers. Um, yeah. So parents, if you've got children yes. heading to university, this could be a good, solid career. Yeah. Um, maybe for the next 25, well, a whole career's worth of effort, possibly. That's been really interesting on that, Robbie. Now, you're in, involved in a, a project which is at an earlier stage, which is, I think it was the A66. Yes. For those that don't know, where's the A66 running to and from? So the A66 um, is a beautiful stretch of highway. Um, uh, it starts at Scotch Corner, junction with the um, A1 going westwards all the way um, into um, Cumbria um, up to the M6 it carries on eastwards from the M6 but this project is the M6 to the Scotch Corner stretch which is um, 50 or 60 miles from memory and over the years it's been most sections of it have been jewelled um, but about one third approximately is not jewelled and government, um, there have been, been schemes for several years now to look at jewelling the remaining sections. Difficulty is it goes through extremely beautiful parts of um, uh, Durham, Cambria, York, North Yorkshire um, uh, uh, and um, uh, it's difficult, difficult to um, work out an acceptable scheme to do the remaining sections. Anyway, government's fastened on this as a key part of its levelling up um, programme for Northern England um, and they are very anxious for construction to start uh, subject to all the consents being given in the first quarter of 2024. So it's a key levelling up project and it's an, it's an important part of our strategic road network because over 25% of the traffic on that stretch of the uh, A66 um, uh, RHGVs um, going from the East Coast ports uh, to Scotland and Northern Ireland. Uh, so a key strategic route uh, has a very high and unacceptably high level of accidents and, and, and fatalities sadly. Um, so myself and many colleagues at Pinsel Masons are uh, currently advising National Highways on preparing uh, the, the equivalent for this sort of scheme of, of the hybrid bill in Parliament I was talking about, which is an application for what's called a development consent order, which again is a complex form of planning permission that gives authority for uh, works to be constructed, uh, compulsory purchase of land, deals with interference with other highways, watercourses. So it's a, it's a, it's a big consent that um, has been used for uh, a lot of big highway schemes in the last 10 years. Um, uh, and um, so we are in the. We're very close to being able to submit 
the application for, 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 for the development consent order to uh, the Secretary of State for Transport um, and that will be uh, shortly now. That will then go off to a process run by the Planning Inspectorate where they will hold a public examination of the application, uh, looking at all of, the, all of the assessments and appraisals, um, uh, hearing concerns from local authorities, from landowners, from community groups, um, and we'll be there um, uh, for National Highways uh, explaining how the scheme has got to where it's got to, because obviously a hugely complex number of uh, options appraisals have been carried out over many years by uh, technical consultants to National Highways. And where I think this project also, uh, and we, we've seen this gradually over the years now, I mean, I think, I think the bank station upgrade is a case in point where uh, Dragados were appointed by Transport for London and London Underground um, uh, it, several years before the consent in that case was given. So they were able to really input um, in terms of construction, constru constructability advice during the planning stage, which until then hadn't really been done very often, might seem surprising to you, but these schemes were mainly um, uh, sort of authorised um, without um, sort of hands-on construction input, if I can put it that way. That began to change with things like Bank Station, but for the A66, um, National Highways under its framework has three contractors already working on it, providing input into the planning stage. So with the intention being that, um, that there's a 99.9% you know, .9 chance that the scheme as authorised will then be one that can be built exactly as envisaged with no unanticipated impacts or, or, or delays. So, Robbie, that, I mean, you just got me my juices flowing so I know all about bank, which obviously was the first time a very innovative yeah. procurement process. Was and a really tricky scheme. Very, very difficult and uh, that's almost about to open, isn't it? Yes, okay. and I think the blockade is now finished slightly early, which is yes. good news. And I saw this very morning that the oversight development opportunity is being uh, advertised, yeah. which I had a lot to do with at the time. Anyway, on that note, yes, let's wrap up this conversation. It's been tremendously insightful, uh, certainly for me, and I should know about this stuff, but I've learned an awful lot today. So thank you for joining me today, Robbie. You're very welcome. I'm guessing the listeners can get in touch with you. We can put your email yep. if you wish. Very, very your, happy to. Your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Uh, if anyone wants to learn more about becoming a parliamentary agent or they've got a big scheme that they want uh, promoting. Uh, terrific. Wonderful. And to all of our listeners today, thank you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Construction Big Breakfast. We have a new episode published every week, so click the subscribe button, which will be down there somewhere. Turn on your notifications uh, so you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, we'd appreciate a five-star review, and if you've enjoyed this episode today, please like it and share it, as that help us reach more listeners. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast or looking to collaborate in other ways, visit us at our website, invent.com. The link is in the description and fill out the contact form and one of my team will be in touch very shortly. So, see you next time. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com, where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. 
While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.